Hi, I'm Tim Gavin, and I love finding connections in music. And sometimes when you look around at what artists have inspired new music, or what artists have worked with each other over the years, sometimes you'll draw some really weird conclusions. And this week, I do have one that is a little bit of a stretch, and I know that there are more factors going into the music that I'm gonna talk about over the next few minutes, but the connections are there. This week, I'm tracing the line from grunge all the way to bro country. This is The Tim Gavin Show, a holistic look at music. On paper, grunge and bro country are complete opposites. One, a local music scene making cool music that people identified and related with that got big almost on a whim. The other, manufactured in Nashville and designed for your average Joe to identify with. And Bro Country takes little bits and pieces of a lot of different genres in its production, but however distant the connection, it's there, all through one producer. Now, the biggest explosions in music are usually the ones that are the most brief. Back when punk rock became a thing, the first wave was pretty short, only lasting technically a couple of years. But many other genres bloomed afterwards, like post-punk, goth, alternative rock, and so much more. Then in the 90s, something sort of happened again with a bunch of bands in Seattle building up a local presence throughout the late 80s, and then becoming worldwide superstars at the turn of the decade. Back in 1991, Smells Like Teen Spirit was unleashed and the world ate it up. And then grunge stayed in the mainstream for a couple years until Kurt Cobain died in 1994. But record labels after that were still trying to capitalize on that sound, signing pretty much any band with slightly heavy guitars. Not too heavy, just heavy enough to keep things kind of interesting, keep it kind of edgy, but somewhat soft enough to appeal to the masses. And of course, the lead singer had to do this with their voice, trying to straight up rip off Eddie Vader. Yeah, don't deny, a lot of bands did that. But anyways, I digress. Critics started calling it post-grunge, and one could argue that post-grunge started right after Kurt Cobain died, with Bush's first album, 16 Stone, getting released in December of 1994. And obviously, they were inspired by grunge, even though they weren't even from North America. Bush was from the UK, which was experiencing the Britpop boom over there at that point. So they didn't quite get as big in the UK as they did in the US. It sort of happened to the Stone Temple Pilots too. They were sort of accepted as grunge in hindsight, but coming from San Diego, it did lead to a lot of gatekeeping. I think at the time, a lot of bands that weren't from Seattle were just considered ripoffs. And around that time, bands like Candlebox, Collective Soul, and Live, they all had albums out that had some pretty big hits on rock radio, and those hits just kept coming. And of course, Dave Grohl eventually started the Foo Fighters, helping to find post-grunge even more. Alanis Morissette released Jagged Little Pill, collaborating with Dave Navarro and Flea on the song You Wanna Know, and also hiring future Foo Fighters member Taylor Hawkins as a live drummer at the time as well. And that album was considered post-grunge. And the genre evolved a little more into the late 90s and early 2000s as well, with Creed releasing My Own Prison independently in 1997, and later signing to Wind Up Records. A band called Days of the New also formed around the same time as Creed, Kind of had a similar sound. Uh, frontman Travis Meeks also brought in Nicole Scherzinger as a backing singer on their second album long before she formed the Pussycat Dolls. Kind of an odd connection there. And also in the years that followed, bands like Puddle of Mud, Hoobastank, Stained, Three Doors Down all got mainstream success. This was also a really huge time period for a lot of Canadian bands as well. 
not only with Alanis Morissette, but also Our Lady Peace also opening the door for post-grunge in Canada. You also started seeing bands like Moist, Default, Theory of a Dead Man getting some hits not only in Canada, but in the States and around the world as well. But one Canadian band would rise up to the top of the post-grunge pile. A year before Creed released My Own Prison, Nickelback put out their first album, Curb. And they'd released two albums before joining with EMI and Roadrunner. But by the year 2000, they started seeing success with a few of their singles. Then, in the spring of 2001, they'd go into Greenhouse Studios with Rick Parisher, the producer on a lot of big grunge albums from the early 90s like Temple of the Dog, Pearl Jam's first album, 10, and Alice in Chains' Sap EP. Then in September of 2001, they released the album that most people think of when they hear post-grunge, Silver Side Up. And on that wave of success, Chad Kroger would form 604 Records, sign Theory of a Dead Man, and Chad Kroger would produce their first album with Joey Moy. And 604 Records would be home to a bunch of other Canadian bands, including Jackalope, Faber Drive, Carly Rae Jepsen, Mariana's Trench, as well as a few country artists nowadays like Jojo Mason, Aaron Perchett, Jesse Farrell, and Dallas Smith when he decided to pursue a country career. He actually kind of dabbled in bro country as well at one point too. But their partnership would continue with Joey Moy on Nickelback's next four albums. But in the dawn of the 2010s, Joey Moy would move to Nashville and produce Jake Owen's third album, Barefoot Blue Jean Night. Then, after the success of that song, Joey Moy would be Florida Georgia Line's producer, and he would help write and then produce their first big single, Cruise, a song which single-handedly started the bro country movement. So the connection is there, but then it continues even more. Around that time, you started seeing some post-grunge artists start to make country music. Like I mentioned earlier, Dallas Smith started putting Default on hiatus until very recently to pursue a solo career in country music. In 2011, Aaron Lewis from Stained put out a few solo records, and outside of that, Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish and Kid Rock and Steven Tyler of all people, they also jumped even more on the country music bandwagon. And to think, however distant, part of this all started because of grunge. The 90s were kind of a weird time in music, especially at the end. And this week for Still the Number One, I'm gonna take a look at this week in 1999, see what music was topping the charts. And this week, I'm joined by a very important person in my life, program director and morning show host at Air 1061 in Airdrie, Alberta. Someone who has worked all over Alberta, my friend and mentor, Claire Spencer. So where were you in 1999? I was in Calgary. I mm -hmm. was finishing up the final year of my radio broadcasting college. Interesting. See, I feel like that last year for radio school, for a lot of people, that is like one of the most important years for people music-wise. Uh, me and Scott, we both talked about our last years of, or last semesters of radio school before we went out and did our internships. And those like four months when the music was coming out, that had like a lot of songs that we ended up loving and we consider our favorites. Um, I think for me, it was a little bit different only because I was a singer first. Right. Oh, yeah? Radio broadcasting was kind of supposed to be my backup career. When my parents told me that I wasn't allowed to go to a performing arts college, I had to do something as a backup. So uh, I ended up going through a, the state book and I was looking through it and I was like, boring, boring, boring. And then I saw CTSR, which was cinema stage, television, radio, film. They've since renamed the course. But when I saw that, I stopped and went radio. Like I love music. I'm a singer. You know, music has been a huge, important part of my life. 
this could be really cool. And then it was like, okay, how do I convince the parents that this isn't performing arts? But they actually didn't take any convincing. And um, I knew the program was really, really hard to get into because a lot of the people that were going into it had already gone and done some other college or university first. You know, they kind of wanted people who were a bit older. So I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get in right away because when I graduated high school, I was only 17. But I guess my resume, if you will, at that point had spoke for itself because of all my years in performing arts and singing and touring and all that kind of stuff and my love of music. They brought me in right away. So everybody was way older than I was, which was weird. I couldn't even go, you know, to the local state campus bar with them. I didn't even have, I was an HT, right? So it was an interesting time in my life, very different, but uh, it was a ton of fun. And obviously, I mean, music's always been a big part of it, but I don't know if that was any more or any less at the time, right? Because a lot of the people that we studied wasn't new, right? When they were asking us to do reports on different musicians and stuff, I remember doing Tom Cochran and Billie Holiday, right? Which was 80s and then, well, a heck of a lot earlier than the 80s, right? With Billie Holiday. So it was an exploration to be sure, but definitely different for me. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But looking back on 1999, there, I'm amazed at actually how much variety are on some of these singles charts, too. Like, every year, I always kind of expect to be see a lot of the same. But no, a little bit of everything on this chart. A little bit of country, uh, a lot of R&B. And, of course, right now, 1999, that was, like, kind of the start for the big, like, Latin pop explosion that happened. Yeah, or, really true. That's when we got a lot of Latin pop artists. I mean, we'd had a couple before and we've had some since, but I think that was their biggest sort of era, if you will. And I think music wise, I think we go through cycles, right? So I think we go through sort of where there's a really good set of rock music phase. And then we go through a really good set of country music phase. And then we go through this phase of pop music. And it seems like the cycle just keeps continuing, right? Like there's one phase and then another phase and the next phase. And they don't always go completely in order, but I find like not all music, genres or types are popular at the same time it always seems to be phases and i think this was definitely a bit of that latin phase it was definitely a bit of a pop phase with a few good rock songs thrown in definitely but what do you think if you had my love what do you think is that still a really good song or has that song you think not aged as well as some of j-lo's other tracks i actually really love that song um a lot of her stuff was really poppy and really more of the stuff you could dance to whereas I found that one was a little bit better lyrically and was a little less the dancey kind of track like it still is but it was her showing just her her singing prowess and whatnot not just her dance moves and her sort of j-lo vibe skill so I thought that was a really important track for her yeah and I think one thing that's really interesting about this track is the guitar I guess I almost want to say it's synthesized but it almost sounds like the same guitar that was in no scrubs like it has that same kind of vibe to it which I find True really enough. interesting because no scrubs, obviously just two spots down. I think that you're absolutely right. Because I think in terms of cycles, we also find that different sounds come in, right? Like you had your new wave where that was a whole new sound and you know people were all kind of doing the same thing. And I think that happens in music all the time. I mean, you went through the phases where people, everybody was using auto-tune, right? Like they find something interesting, people like it, it, it catches on and then you get a couple big hits out of it and then all the rest are kind of like that for a little bit or at least there's a lot of it. And I think you're right. I think that they kind of found a few songs that use that same sort of sound. And at the time, it became very popular. It did. Let's see, going through here. Uh, number seven. That didn't impress me much. On the church for like <laughs> 20, but that was at its peak, which I, I find really interesting because I remember for some reason, thinking back to 1991 or 1999, I feel like that song was like bigger. Like it should have almost been a number one song in its own right. You know, the era, I, I think you're right. And I don't 
maybe in the U.S. it didn't do quite as well. In Canada, it certainly did, I think, hit the number one top spot at some point. And I mean, that song is even now so iconic and it's been used in so many things, commercials, whatever. And it really made her super famous. And I think that was really the peak of her career at that point, right? But the fact that she's still coming back now and people love her, it just shows it, it was definitely a hit. Oh, for sure. But what song on this chart do you think should have been number one? Like just kind of glancing through like in the top 40 or in the, the top 100 of these tracks, is there a song on here that you feel should have been a little bit, a little bigger? Well, that's a hard one because a lot of these songs to me all mean something. Like I remember it, it was, you know, that, that new adult youth time. And, you know, when I started going to the bars, they were still playing. And it also depends on your taste in music. And I'm a pretty big genre. Like I love just about everything, if you will. But, um, you know, not a lot of people are say into hip hop, right? So like Who Dat, I thought was a really great song. Same with like Wild Wild West. Whereas I feel like Jordan Knight, Give It To You, like his own reach out, like branch out from the group was not, uh, was not huge. You know what I mean? So I'm surprised it actually made it up as high as it did, right? Um, right. But I think if I had to go with straight up singing and talent and surprising, Whitney Houston. Like, I don't think there's a song of hers that should never have been number one. Yeah, you know what? I am, I'm kind of with you on Whitney Houston. Also, taking a look here, another song that I think, maybe not number one, but I think could have been, should have been slightly higher. Actually, no, wait, I was looking at uh, wrong song here. Uh, Let's see, which one was it? What about oh, yeah, like Goo Goo Dolls, Slide. Yeah, that one should that's have been exactly one what I'm saying. Point. And I mean, it's still played everywhere today, right? So that really kind of, you know, surprises me a little bit. Even Share Believe, like I could have sworn that was a lot higher. Yeah. Right, I there's think... a few of them. But sometimes even if they don't make number ones, they still become those classic iconic songs and hits. And that's what I love about music. Like you don't have to be the top three just to have what people consider a hit because yeah, none of those were number one, but they were all massive tunes that all of us can remember today. And I think we're starting to see a lot of that even into like the past few years as well. Like you're seeing bands that really aren't technically are technically one hit wonders and technically like don't have any radio hits at all. And yet they still manage to command these huge fan bases just because, well, they're just ever so slightly outside the radio format. Well, yes, and also because some of those one-hit wonders did hit number one, but then they never came back and did another hit, and you're like, why? Right? Yeah. Like, if you had that much passion, and people felt your music, your lyrics, and gave you all of that love, why didn't anything else work? What was it about that that you couldn't seem to continue to capitalize on? Like, it's really interesting how the music business works, because I think it all comes down to performance it becomes down to production it comes down to what the lyrics say and how they touch people what the sound is like and sometimes it's hit or miss whereas other times you know something with very little lyrics is a massive banger and something that is really well written isn't and you're just like why but again it's just what people are in the mood for at the time and I think even right now especially with everything going on with COVID it's going to change people's opinions on right now what's going to touch them and what they're feeling right so what's going to resonate with them right now may not be something that would have resonated with them if this hadn't happened, right? That's true. And going back to One Hit Wonders, one thing that I find really interesting is that a lot of One Hit Wonders, they might have only had one hit in North America, but they're absolutely huge elsewhere. 
<laughs> yeah, and I think that's part of it too. I mean, it, it depends on cultures too. Certain cultures will grab onto something more than another culture will. And just because, you know, maybe it's a Western hit, they're like, oh, it's Western, it's a hit, we're gonna jump all over it. And then they continue to have careers. I mean, you look at, say, David Hasselhoff. Has he ever been on any of the charts that you can remember? And yet you take, go to other countries and he can get up on stage and sing for hours and people just love it. Yet here, uh, most women would go for like the shock factor to say, I watched David Hasselhoff sing, but not I necessarily because of the music. Yeah, right? But yeah. I feel like he's not going to get the response here that he would somewhere else. It's just, again, it depends on the time and the people. And we all have different circumstances. And what is deemed cool and fun in one country or one place might not in another. Absolutely. Yeah. So looking back on the charts, I'd say Jennifer Lopez, still the number one. Yeah. I mean, she had her time. She did her thing. And the one thing I'll give Jennifer Lopez is a lot of pop artists come out, they make these big hits, but their staying power lasts like, you know, let's go 10 years, right? Look at that chart. It's 1999. And who was at the Super Bowl this past year, right? Like she has made a legend of herself, right? Yeah. I'm not going to... I want to say she's in the legends like the Whitney's and, you know, the Tina Turner's and the Mariah Carey's. I don't know if she's 100% on those levels, but she's definitely, if she continues to go, she will be. You know what I mean? Is she Aretha Franklin when it comes to actual vocals? No, probably not. But she has found a way to continue to be relevant. And I think that also is what helps make a number one hit star. I think so too. And another thing is that she's basically a jack of all trades, not only a decent singer, but also great actor and a spectacular dancer too. Absolutely. And that's the thing, right? Like some people have more than one talent and some people are talented more at one thing than another. But if you can incorporate it and do all the things you love, that's how you make a lasting career. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that not only was it something she had some talent in, but it shows she did love it. Because when you put that kind of love and passion into something, that's when you get success. A lot of people expect success to just come to them without the work, and it never happens. And I guarantee you behind the scenes, that girl works hard. Doing research on this episode has made me want to take a look at Post Grunge again and listen closer for those bro country connections. So I'm going to take a look at two albums from the two bands that most people associate with Post Grunge, Creed and Nickelback. When I was first exploring music, deciding what bands and genres I liked, I used to enjoy a lot of their stuff. And I even got into a few pretty dumb arguments over the years about Nickelback. The first thing, I listened to Creed's first album, My Own Prison. Even though a lot of people write off Creed as a bad band, on paper this is a pretty good album. It got some pretty rave reviews when it came out, and even now when music journalists talk about it, they do give it a lot of praise for what it was. And in many ways, this album is pretty impressive. It was made on a budget of only $6,000, ended up selling millions of copies, and there are also two versions of this album, the original independent release and a re-release on Wind Up Records. The re-release is a lot more tightened up, a lot of song lengths kind of cut down, but for the most part, the production sounds pretty much the same. So the production on it is solid, and it is still their first album. And even though it has got a lot of praise, listening back to it a couple times, I honestly found it a bit boring to listen to. It is decent enough. Like I said, I know that it was just their first album, but honestly, I thought pretty much every song sounded the same, and not in a good way. Even as someone who likes this kind of music, as someone who embraces longer songs, I did find this album a bit of a chore to listen to. 
Don't get me wrong, it does have some good songs on it, but I think for My Own Prison, what Creed should have done is cut down the songs, released it as an EP, put all the good songs just on one small package. Torn, Ode, My Own Prison, What's This Life For, and One. Just release that, and I think that EP, if it would have ever come out the way I describe it, could have gotten them just as much popularity while they developed their sound, and they could have really hit their stride with Human Clay. And in a lot of ways, I think My Own Prison is a good representation of the main criticisms late 90s hard rock and post-grunge had. Again, a lot of same-sounding stuff, uh, slightly preachy-sounding lyrics, but even though I find this album lacking in a lot of things, I do think that it's really cool that they made an album that sounds this consistent and this polished on what was a pretty limited budget. But just because it's your first album doesn't mean it can't be interesting. Now, if you ever want to actually listen to Creed, and I do think you should maybe listen to them if you like hard rock, even if you have been put off by listening to them before about what other people have said, check out some of their stuff. Check out their albums, Human Clay and Weathered. Uh, those two are their best albums. Or just listen to their greatest hits if you just want to dip your toes in. But I think there will be a couple songs that you might actually kind of like. Or better yet, skip ahead, listen to Alter Bridge, a much more interesting band, and features most of Creed, with Miles Kennedy on lead vocals. Scott Stapp also has a few great songs with his other band, Art of Anarchy. As I was listening to this album from Creed, I was paying close attention to the production and the lyrics, the music, to try and see if there are any connections to Bro Country in that, and aside from maybe a few lyrics, I didn't really hear too much similarities there. So, I put on Nickelback's All the Right Reasons. And this was right at the peak of their popularity, the second album that had Joey Moy's production. And this album got a lot more flack from music purists and critics alike, with the highest review coming from Billboard magazine at 4 to 5 stars, most other reviews kind of ranging at 2 to 3 stars. It's actually been a while since I've listened to any Nickelback outside of work, and my opinion on them has changed since I was younger. Even though my opinion on Nickelback has changed over the years, I still enjoy their music, and this album in particular, I think, is still pretty good. From a production standpoint, even though it is kind of a victim of the loudness war, it's still amazingly produced. Listening to it again on my stereo, turning up the volume, it sounds great, it sounds nice and clear, it's just very easy to listen to and really easy to enjoy. It's pretty easy to see why. It was mastered by a guy named Ted Jansen, who has also mastered Fallen from Evanescence and Green Day's American Idiot. But Joey Moy's production on All the Right Reasons, I think, is definitely what makes this shine as well. And the production is definitely the biggest part of this music that has made it into Bro Country. That squeaky clean, having everything nice and loud. Also, if you listen real close to some songs on Florida Georgia Line's first album, you can hear some very Nickelback-sounding guitars in the background. But back to All the Right Reasons. Back when I was 14, I loved this album to death, but my opinion has changed on it, and I have found other music that I like more. I've started finding lyrics to be cheesy or sometimes straight-up problematic on All the Right Reasons. But overall, I don't think this album or this band is as bad as people who hate it make it out to be. All the Right Reasons is, I'd say, neither overrated or underrated. It's an album that you will still get some enjoyment out of, not if you're looking for deeper meaning, but just if you want to rock out which is, I think, when Nickelback are at their most enjoyable. Don't take the music too seriously. Just turn it on, turn it up, and just use it as, as background music for a good time. 
and all the right reasons. It definitely is a lot of things, but this album is definitely not boring. Also, kind of beside the point, something that I've been thinking about is the more I listen to post-grunge, the more I realize that Canadian bands were making better post-grunge than their American counterparts. And it was actually a really great experience going back, revisiting some of this music from a different point of view. So this week's suggested listening is all up to you. I want you to think of some bands or albums that maybe you haven't picked up in a while or don't like as much as you used to. Give them a listen. See if they still spark something in you. Huge thanks for listening to the episode. And by the way, don't forget to binge the rest of us on Anchor or wherever you get your podcasts. And also like the Tim Gavin Show on Facebook. A link to our social media and our sources is in the description. We also put up a link where you can join in on our conversation. Leave a message with me on Anchor. Give me some feedback. Let me know what you want to learn more about. I'm always looking for future ideas for new episodes of The Tim Gavin Show. Huge thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you again later. And by the way, a huge thank you to Sarah Miranda for the great new cover artwork.